Thomas Lee. Where is he? Does he have the Happy Club bag? Oh, here it is right here. There you go, Miss Sabina. All right, let's see what he brought in the bag today. Something big, something round. Something black and white. What is it? Soccer ball. Why'd you bring a soccer ball, Thomas? It's my favorite sport. Favorite sport. Are you good at it? Yes. Okay. (laughs) That's so good. Soccer ball. All right. I don't know a whole lot about soccer, but one thing that comes to mind is is I know when you kick, where are you supposed to kick the ball to? A teammate. A teammate. And then where does the teammate kick it? To the goal. The ball is supposed to go in the goal, isn't it? And when it goes in the goal, you get a point and you score. And what happens if you miss the goal? Don't cry. Don't cry. That's a good rule. No points. No points. That's right. No points and you don't cry. That's a good You know what, what that reminds me of, though, Thomas, is that uh, the word, this is, this is going to sound kind of funny, but just stay with me. The word for sin in the Bible means missing the mark. Do you all know what a sin is? It's doing anything that God doesn't like, anything that's displeasing to him. And when you sin, you miss the mark, the mark that God has for you. And Thomas, it kind of reminds me of the goal in soccer. When you get that ball in the goal, you get a point and that's good. But when you, when you miss it, in a way, that's kind of like a sin because you've missed the mark uh, in a way that God has for you. So it, it doesn't necessarily apply to soccer, but in every area of life, there's a goal that God has for you, boys and girls. And as long as you head toward that goal and do what God wants you to do, you'll be pleasing to him. But when you miss that mark, like missing the goal in soccer, the Bible calls that a sin. And that's when we need to ask God to forgive us. So next time you're playing soccer and you miss the goal, don't say, oh, no, I sinned <laughs> because your coach won't understand what you're talking about. But you'll know, you'll know that a sin is missing the mark. And when you, when you have that goal in soccer, think about that. And think about making the goal for Christ. All right, let's pray and ask God to bless us and help us hit the goal. Not necessarily in soccer, but in every area of life all the time. Let's pray. Dear God, help us aim for the goal that you have for us. And go for it. Always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Thomas, here's your soccer ball. Remember, boys and girls, if you miss the goal, don't cry. That's a good, good rule. Miss Sabina, it's a, it's a girl's turn, isn't it? Where's Rebecca? Will you take the bag and bring something back next Sunday? Thank you, boys and girls. If you'd like to go to children's worship, you can go with Miss Sabina.
prayer, a dream and a vision for what this land would be. A hope conceived in the hearts of those who must be as their only destiny. The greatest nation ever known, America, my blessed home. A prayer, a dream, and a vision for what this land could be. A hope conceived in the number 379 is Brethren We Have Met to Worship. Number 379, will you please stand as we sing.
Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, thank you for bringing us all together today to worship you. Father, I thank you for the many blessings you've given us, and I pray that you use those blessings to glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen.
Thank you, choir. I love it when uh, a psalm is set as the text for an anthem because it reminds me that the children of Israel used the psalms as their hymnal. And so somehow I feel like when we're singing the psalms, it connects us to the children of Israel 2,500, 3,000 years ago. They were singing the same things, just not with a piano and pipe organ. Second Chronicles 7, 14. I, I wrestled with this passage all week long. I was going to preach on uh, Good King Hezekiah or Good King Josiah. You remember First Chronicles extols the kingship of David. Second Chronicles extols the kingship of Solomon. And I was, going to, I was thinking about Hezekiah or Josiah or, or some of those good kings that, that fell in that time period. Basically, the writer of Chronicles depicts a good king as one who worships God and a bad king as one who brings in foreign gods and foreign idols and foreign shrines. So a good king comes along and he destroys the, the shrines and knocks down the idols and restores Worship of the one true God. And that is the main criteria for determining who's a good king and who's a bad king in Israel. Well, Solomon was one of the the top. And Solomon has finished the temple. And God is pleased, and they're preparing to move into the temple to worship. And I'm going to start reading at 2 Chronicles, verse 11, just to give us a little context. Instead of preaching on Hezekiah and Josiah, I just I decided there's no way you can't preach on 2 Chronicles 7.14. And so I, I fell back on that verse, and, um, and there will be. 2 Chronicles 7 verse 11 says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord, the temple, and the king's house, all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Here's verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a condition. If my people will do this, this, and this, God says, I will do this, this, and this. Now, if God's not doing this, whose fault is it? It's because somewhere along the way, we aren't being obedient to the things he wants us to do. Let's pray. Father, as we gather here to worship you, we want to be your people. We want to humble ourselves and pray. Father, we want to seek your face and turn from our wicked ways. Because we know when we do that, you will be faithful. You have promised to hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land. And God, you know how desperately our land needs healing today. We are lost. We are like sheep without a shepherd in our nation. Where everything seems to be okay. Where no one wants to 
stand up and speak the truth for fear of offending anyone. Where no one seems to have an answer for this problems, these problems that have beset us. You state quite plainly and clearly, O Lord, what you will do if we will do some things. So help us as your people to be the starting point. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The story is told about a retired Baptist minister who was on his deathbed. And he called for his banker and his lawyer to come and be with him in his final moments. My apologies to bankers and lawyers who may be here this morning, but I'm just telling a a true story here, sort of. They were uh, a little startled by his request because, honestly, it had been no secret that they had never been the best of friends. Apparently, over the years, the preacher had spared no punches from the pulpit when he believed both of them to be a little less than honest. When they arrived at his bedside, they got beside him, and he took their hands and smiled and closed his eyes, and he laid there with his eyes closed for several minutes just holding their hands, and they began to get a little uncomfortable. Finally, one of them asked him, they said, Brother Preacher, frankly, we haven't been too close to you in your ministry here, and we're a little surprised that you called us to your bedside before your death. May we ask why? And the preacher replied, I have tried to follow Jesus and model my life after him in every way. And he died between two thieves. And so that's the way I want to go too. I would never do such a thing. But I have a a slight problem with the story because the problem is when there is a spiritual battle to be waged, Our tendency is to look at everyone else and point the finger at everyone else. But throughout the Bible, my friends, God has been trying to tell us that the problem isn't with everybody else. The problem is with us. The problem is with you and me. And that brings us to 2 Chronicles 7. There's no way to preach on 2 Chronicles without looking at 7.14 where God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, here they are, the conditions, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways for things, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. I want you to notice first to whom this verse is directed. This verse is directed to God's people. He says, if my people... Not pagans, not non-Christians, not Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or anyone else. It's God's people. If God is going to hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land, it will be because God's people humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. Over and over again in scriptures, you find passages where a few people have cried out to God on behalf of their entire nation. And God saw fit in His mercy to spare their land because His mercy was inclusive of everyone when even a few intercede on behalf of all the people. And God will do that for us, but it's up to us. 
So rather than three points in a poem this morning, I'm going to approach this message a little differently. Take a little bit different tack. If you don't want to hear from God, if you don't want him to forgive our sin, if you don't want him to heal our land, what do we need to do? What do we not need to do? What should we continue doing? I can think of seven things that will create a logjam for God's love and forgiveness, according to this verse. You can probably think of others, but in in your bulletin, there's an outline. The first thing, if you don't want God to hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land, then by all means, don't humble yourself and pray. Don't do that. Like I said, these are conditions. They're simple and forthright. If you want God to hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land, the Bible says you have to humble yourself and pray and seek his face and and turn from your wicked ways. It is a simple formula. If you want D, E, and F to happen, then you've got to do A, B, and C. A, B, and C. Humble yourself. Pray. Seek his face. Turn from your wicked ways. If you do that, then God promises to hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land. If D, E, and F are not happening, then it's because God's people are not doing A, B, and C. Do you see the correlation? Do you see how simple and clear God puts it for us? If God's not healing our land, it's our fault. A man once asked Gypsy Smith, who was a a famed evangelist of a previous century, how to experience revival. He wanted revival to come to his community. And Smith asked him, do you have a place where you can pray? And the man said, yes, I do. And Smith said, I'll tell you what you do. You go to that place where you pray and you kneel down and you draw, you take a piece of chalk with you and you draw a circle around you, all around you. And then you pray for God to send revival to everything that's in that circle. And you stay there until he answers. And then you can have revival. You see what he's saying? Spiritual revival, renewal, rededication begins with every person in their own heart. Begins with you and me. So if you don't want God to to heal our land, by all means, don't humble yourself and pray. Secondly, don't worship. That's That's the second condition. Humble yourself, pray. Seek my face. Seek my face just means to worship God. It means to spend time with him. The prophet Jeremiah in 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So if you want some kind of spiritual renewal to happen, if you want God to hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land, then you're going to have to worship God personally, and it has to start with you. We Baptists believe in this this doctrine called the priesthood of the believer. And what that means is that you and I are like priests. You and I are like ministers. And that means that no one ever gets saved or rededicated by someone else. No one ever is saved. Their lives are never rededicated in absentia or by proxy. You have to seek God yourself. You have to worship him Personally, you have to seek his face individually. 
And let me tell you, Satan is not, not going to want that to happen. He will place all kinds of obstructions and obstacles and conflicts and confusion in your life to prevent that. Because Satan does not want you to worship the one true God. So, if you think worship just happens on Sunday morning between 11 and 12, then Satan has it made because he ha- all he has to do is distract you for one hour a week. But if you see worship as being something that you can do all week long, all day long, if everything you do can become an act of worship to God, and that's basically what Brother, Brother Lawrence is talking about in practicing the presence of God. He saw washing up plates and dishes in the kitchen of the monastery as an act of worship. Everything can become an act of worship. And if that is the case for you, then Satan has to compete with you all week long. But if you do come into this house of worship, and and nothing I say really clicks for you, at least you'll be in God's house with your Bible in an attitude of prayer and repentance. And who knows, God may have something special in store that he wants to deliver to you. But you can be sure of one thing, it won't happen if you don't come. And when you're here, worship. When you leave here, worship. When you go to your house, when you go to work, when you go to school, when you're in your neighborhood, it can be an act of worship. Everything can be transformed into a life of worship before God. And that's seeking His face. That's all it is. Seeking His face. You know, so often all we, we come into God's presence and we seek His hands. God, give me this. Do this for me. Take care of me. Provide this for me. God, you know I need this. We're just seeking His hands. We aren't really worshiping Him and seeking His face until we just come into His presence and say, God, I'm just here to say I love you and I worship you and I adore you and I'm going to spend some time here just singing your praises. Maybe reading a psalm. (laughs) Those are praises. Songs to God. And when we do that, God will hear and he will respond. So don't humble yourself and pray. Don't worship. The third thing that comes right out of this verse is don't repent. Because he says, humble yourself, pray, seek my face, and fourthly, turn from their wicked ways. Turning means to repent. That's That's what turning from wicked ways means. It means to repent. Repentance means to be so sorry for your sins that you actually intend not to keep doing them. Saying you're sorry and repentance are two different things. Saying you're sorry means I'm sorry for doing something, but I'll probably do it again. Repentance means saying I'm sorry for doing something, and I'm going to turn away from it, God, and I'm going to walk away from it, and I'm going to, with your strength and with your help, I desire truly to to leave that out of my life and not keep going back to that same mistake over and over again. It seems like the, the greatest temptation that you and I have in our life today from which we need to repent is our wealth, our resources, our possessions. You know, of the parables that Jesus told, two thirds of them dealt with possessions. Why? 
Because the Bible, because Jesus understood that the love of money can be the root of all evil. And for a lot of folks, that is the one issue that keeps God from being the Lord of our life. Because we give him everything else, but we don't trust him with our resources. How can we expect God to do anything significant in our land if we don't trust him enough to present a tithe to him? To say, God, I know you can take care of me. Where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. So for a lot of us, our affluence has become the biggest obstacle to repentance and trust in God. Because when people on the other side of the world, when our folks, our forefathers in centuries gone by, didn't know where their next meal was coming from. They depended on God. But when we've got food laid up in the storehouse, and we have resources running over, it's so much easier to depend on ourselves. Second Chronicles says we need to turn away from our wicked ways. Basically, that means our dependence on everything that is not of God. Repent of that and turn to him because he will have no other God before him. Don't repent. The fourth thing, don't expect any. Don't expect anything. I have learned that most people find in worship what they expect to find. When people come in here expecting nothing to happen, When they come in here unprepared to worship, when their Bible has been on the dashboard of their car from Sunday to Sunday, and and no preparation has really been made to worship, they'll seldom be surprised. But when folks come in here and their hearts are laid open because they've been crying out to God all week and they have been seeking His face and humbling themselves and praying, then when they come in here expecting God to do something, He will. Churches that are dead tend to remain dead. Churches that are alive and on fire for God tend to remain alive and on fire for God. Because what you expect goes a long way in determining what God's going to do among us. The best example I can think of of that happened about 20 years ago. I was in South Carolina and we had a Billy Graham crusade coming to Columbia, South Carolina. Preachers all over my area began cultivating church members and and lost and unsaved. Six months in advance, we were praying for the unsaved. And we loaded up a church bus and we drove 100 miles to Columbia to get into University of South Carolina's football stadium. And we were there and we were waiting for God to work among us, to do something great. While we were sitting there, we looked up in the sky and saw clouds gathering. We saw lightning in a distance, and the, the, news, the man came over the loudspeaker and said that a thunderstorm was coming, and we were so disappointed because all this work and all this preparation and all this prayer had gone into this service, and it looked like rain was going to wash us out. Billy Graham came to the pulpit, and he preached a five-minute sermon on Acts 16, which is the Philippian jailer coming to faith. What must I do to be saved? And Billy basically gave an invitation, and we prayed. And I looked up, and there must have been 5,000 people making a decision that night for Jesus Christ. 
I was in awe of it. I've never seen anything like it before or since. And I realized what happened was those people came to that service that night expecting to make a decision and they didn't let some little thunderstorm deter them from that happening. So if you want God to do something in our land, expect something. If you don't, then don't expect. The fifth thing is, if you don't want God to do anything in our land, don't share the gospel with anyone. By all means, don't tell anybody about Jesus Christ. Keep it a secret. Most worship services occur where 90% of the people gathered are already saved, already members of our church, already going to heaven. Most of our friends, if you'll be honest, are Christians. We run in Christian circles, birds of a feather. You know what we do. We hang out together and we aren't really cultivating relationships with people who need to hear about God's love and Jesus' saving grace on the cross. If you want God to heal our land, it would be nice occasionally to have some lost people in the congregation. It would be nice to invite a friend who's not saved or even to share what Jesus has done for you. As a matter of fact, let me, let me just say this. I believe when you share Jesus with someone, it means a whole lot more than when I or a member of our ministry team shares Jesus with someone. Let me tell you why. Because when I do it, they look at me as saying, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. And it's easy to write off. But if you do it, it throws them a curve. And they can't quite figure it out. And they think, this person must really be sincere. This person must really care about me. This person must really love Jesus and want to share him with me. And that's why God can use a dedicated layperson, such as yourself, in ways he could never use a preacher. If God's going to heal our land... It's going to be because you're out there sharing the gospel with people who need to hear the name of Jesus. Sixthly, if God's going to heal our land, it's going to have to begin with us. If you don't want him to heal our land, for goodness sakes, don't think any of this I say applies to you. When I make a point, look around at someone else. And hope they are listening. When you notice the words of the special music, elbow your spouse. Whatever you do, don't look inside your own heart. Because God might just be trying to do something there. It's so funny to me when I'm standing in the back door and people are leaving and, they're, and we're shaking hands. And they say something like, you really told them today, preacher. I, I hope they were listening. And I want to say... Brother and sister, I was talking to you. Don't you get it? And this is true for everyone. I'm preaching to everybody. Everybody needs to hear this verse. It needs to apply to you. So don't look at anybody else sitting around you or in front of you or behind you. If God's going to heal our land, it's going to begin with each of us. And whatever we do is going to determine 
the direction that this church will follow. But whoever is praying and inviting and leading and reconciling and repenting, that's where it's going to begin. And God wants it to start with you. The seventh thing I'm throwing in here because it's a, it's a little warning that Jesus gives us in Matthew 13, 58, and it still baffles me. If you don't want God to heal our land, then by all means, don't believe. This is what Jesus said at his conclusion of his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth. He says in Matthew 13, 58, he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. How about that? I thought Jesus could do anything. He could overpower them. He could do a mighty work whenever and wherever he wanted to. But this verse says that God's mighty actions are predicated on our belief or lack of it. And whenever or wherever Jesus found unbelief, God withheld his mighty work. His hand was stymied. There's some things that God chooses not to do. He can't forgive someone who doesn't want to be forgiven. He can't save somebody who doesn't want to be saved. And he can't do a mighty work in a land where there is no belief. It takes eyes of faith to see and to believe for God to do a mighty work. It's kind of like casting fertilizer on a ground. And when you throw that fertilizer out there, it provides a foundation for belief that God can sow seeds that will spring up and take root. And if God is going to heal our land, it's going to be because people are humbling themselves and praying and seeking God's face and turning from their wicked ways. And through all that, believing God for a miracle to happen, he does mighty works where there is belief. He chooses to operate that way. In 1857, four Irishmen began a weekly prayer meeting in a little village school. And that prayer meeting began to grow to other neighboring schools. And revival became a common theme among the preachers of that part of Ireland. The next year, 100,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ in the churches of Ireland, and it was marked as the beginning of the revival of Ulster in 1859. By 1860, crime was reduced. The judges had no cases to try. One county in Ireland reported no crime and no prisoners in the jail. It was the greatest thing to hit Ireland since the revival of St. Patrick centuries earlier. Services were packed with people. There, was, there were prayer meetings going on and lasting into the night. Family prayers increased. Scripture reading was going on in the home. Sunday schools prospered. People stood firm. Giving increased. Vice and crime disappeared. All because people started praying. And we read about that and I think, wow, why can't something like that happen here? But it probably won't. But why not? Why not here? Why not now? The only reason has to be because you and I are not willing to pay the price to humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways because when we do that, God has promised that he will hear from heaven, 
He will forgive our sin. And he will heal our land. It's as simple as that. What are we not doing that keeps it from happening? What would we be willing to do to make it start? He's promised us he will hear and forgive and heal when we will humble ourselves and pray and worship him and repent. Let's do that right now. Will you bow with me? God, show us the price we are not willing to pay for you to come in power in our midst. Very plainly, you say that if your people, which is, which is we, if we will humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways, if we'll just do those things, you will hear from heaven and you will forgive our sin and you'll hear our land. And, and God, we desire that. We want that. But I guess not badly enough to do what it'll take to make that happen. Father, we want to begin with prayer. I thank you that there are people praying right now for this worship service. There are people praying right now in this congregation. There are people who have prayed all week and and studied all week and prepared all week for this worship service. And God, we, we come expecting you to move. We come expecting you to do something great among us because you are a God of miracles and of power and of love and mercy. And so, God, we come asking you to pour yourself out among us. Show us what we need to change in our lives for you to move in mightier ways among us. God, help us with our belief so that when you do come, you can do a mighty work among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our invitational hymn this morning is number 312, Softly and Tenderly, 312. Ree Reinhardt came in the early service this morning, joining our church upon transfer of letters. She'll be an associate in our children's ministry, and we welcome her on our ministry team, welcome her back. But also, the doors of fellowship, of invitation, of decision are open for you. Don't think this time is for someone else. Don't look to someone else. Don't hope someone else is making a decision. Because God may just be speaking to you. Ask God what he wants you to do. How he wants you to respond. And then you act accordingly. 312, I'll be at the front.